Happy Monday and welcome back to another exciting week of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Jim's co-pilot, Chris Henry of the EA Aviation Museum. And uh, today, once again, we're very fortunate to have a, an awesome guest with us, uh, one of the curators at the National Air and Space Museum, Jennifer Lavasser. How are you, Jen? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Oh, we're, we're glad to have you. It was awesome to have you on the uh, the other day, and uh, it, it, we knew we had to have you back on, and I, I think <laughs> me and Jim both were pretty geeked out uh, uh, talking about everything under the sun, including sometimes even the movie. So <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to focus on this when we've got cool artifacts to talk about, but uh, maybe today we'll, uh, we've got some nice little things uh, that kind of connect the two again today. You know, l- last week we were talking uh, uh, about how this, this is the most blatant exposition ever in the movie because... Uh, yeah, at the time, 1995, there were a lot of people who weren't around or alive or might not have known how the uh, Apollo lunar missions went. So uh, so Tom Hanks, as Jim Lovell, is kind of explaining it with, uh, you know, much like Frank McGee or Jules Bergman would do back in the day by waving models in front of people's faces and saying, and then this happens and this happens. You know, I was um, 18 when this movie came out. I was just graduating, um, starting college. And even though I grew up being interested in the space program. I grew up in Southern Michigan. And so I was very aware of particular astronauts, especially from Ohio, including John Glenn, who was a Senator while I grew up. Um, I found this particularly useful to really kind of grasp what I didn't experience personally. Um, That's something we talk about at the museum a lot is how do we make these things exciting to people when they happened, you know, even the space shuttle for say my children is a little bit abstract because they weren't alive during the space shuttle program for the most part. So um, it's not really a part of who they, you know, what their upbringing is. And so this is, you know, this is helpful. And this is kind of the technique that we would use in the museum, which is to use a model. So, so um, it's a yeah, it's a familiar thing that we do here at the museum to really um, make it a little bit clear how all the parts and pieces work together, and you know what caused some of the problems that have happened over the course of you know different space missions. So um, it makes it really comfortable, especially in thinking about the fact that. At the time, his son was somewhere around four or five years old. My son is about the same right now, and I think I would probably do the same thing in trying to explain something to him. Now, when you when you take your son to the uh, to work, you know, take, when you take your son to work, uh, does he share your fascination with the space program? Um, my younger son, though, the one that's at this age, um, he turns five at the end of the month. Um, he. I actually have it on my office wall. Um, he wants to be a pilot. He wrote, drew a picture of him inside an airplane. And so it says, when I grow up, I want to be a pilot. Um, he's fascinated by the airplanes, not so much by the space stuff. And I think it's partly because of the, his lack, his, his lack of, um, proximity to that in time he was born in 2013 after the space shuttle had gone out of service and so it's not something that I ever regularly talked about with him but he's been on lots of airplanes and so I think it's a much more comfortable thing for him to talk about I mean not that he's not fascinated by what I do he wants to come and see stuff he knows I work on space stuff he knows about the space shuttle it's just that when he comes to see the building he wants to see the airplanes and that's I think what we get a lot of with certain kids um, that I've seen come in and I've given tours to that, that 
a lot of the boys seem really interested right now in airplanes. Um, so he, he's a West Sider. He goes to the West yeah, of the building. Exactly. Yeah. It's really hard for me to give tours because I'm not an airplane person. And so even talking to my own kid, it's actually kind of helpful because I'm looking at it through his eyes in a lot of ways, too. And my descriptions of airplanes come a lot from having talked to him about them. And so... It's a real, it's, you know, it's really easy to give a tour of something you're not familiar about when you're thinking about it in terms of a five-year-old, um, yeah. you know, you can relate to them a lot easier because you don't know stuff and they don't know stuff and you're kind of learning together and it's like an adventure. Um, and I think it's kind of the way that Jim Lovell, at least this particular demonstration of how he might have done this with his son, it's kind of the same idea they have. It's not too, um, parent-child and the way they're conversing it feels very he's sitting in a chair with him he's not talking down to him um so i kind of like the strategy not that yeah. you know having met jim lovell before this is totally believable <laughs> that he would do this uh, what, I, i've been in uh, in my travels with in the air and space museum i i've asked a couple of docents there about uh what the most common questions are. And I know the two most common are, where's the bathroom? And the second one is, are these really the real spacecraft? Yes. What would you say is the third question? What is the how, third most? How do you go to the bathroom in space? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Notice that two out of three of those questions have to do with the bathroom. Yes. I think it's... Um, you know, and that's part of what my collection involves is is the sort of really human elements of, you know, day-to-day -day operations in space. I deal with the food. I deal with hygiene and medical equipment, things that most every person would have experienced at some point already in their lives by the time they're five or six years old. So, you know, talking about these things is commonplace um, just in a sort of general, you know, life on Earth sense. Um so you want to know where the bathrooms are in the museum, but that, though, of course, triggers the question, well, how would I do that if I were in space? I understand how it works on an airplane. I get up, I walk to the tiny little bathroom in the closet, <laughs> and then I go back to my seat. It's kind of like doing it in any any other place. But the fact that it, they know that astronauts float makes that question just, you know, a really big unknown. And I, it's a lot of fun to answer. I've done lots of interviews and speaking about it and how we engage with children and, and this it's a really it's a really simple way to start getting them to think about life in space and the possibilities and um some of the challenges that we face lots i mean lots of it is about the challenges and so something as simple as how to go to the bathroom is is, a, is actually a pretty simple entry point into talking about the bigger issue jennifer you're actually pretty famous for answering that question aren't you <laughs> I, I think I answered that on the uh, in another podcast that I was involved in, and when I visited EAA last fall, uh, I was on the Green Dot, yeah, and I answered that. And I've done a few interviews about it. Otherwise, I, I um, one of my fam one of my favorite ones though is I, I was in an interview, did an interview that became a bit viral, and uh, it was about sort of debunking the idea of astronaut ice cream as that you know foamy stuff you buy in the museum gift shop, and. Um, uh, it made it all the way to being on uh, a, a joke on Stephen Colbert's uh, uh, late show one one evening. So I felt like I really had hit the – even though I wasn't – my interview wasn't in there, it wasn't like I was featured on the show. The, the topic itself just uh, – yeah, it was kind of cool that it got out that way. Amazing. What, uh, how big – just wondering on the, on the staff, there's so, so many things that uh, 
that have to get done at the Air and Space Museum. I'm sure you know you have you have hundreds of people working there. But how big is your staff of interpreters? The, you know the docents, the people people pointing to things and saying this is what this does as as a as a a group. You know, that's a really good question. I don't have the answer to. I would suspect it's in the hundreds. Typically, when we do um, new classes uh, that we train, we're training somewhere around fifty at a time. We do those every. Mm, I don't know, I want to say three or four years um, and those groups kind of cycle in and out. So, you know, those it's not like we're just adding to a static number. Some people um, leave. Some people do it uh, as a retirement job. It's not a job. They're not paid for it. So, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind when you come to visit the museum is that when you see a docent, those people are there as volunteers. They are spending their time talking to all of our visitors, and they are what I call the face of the museum. I'm not. I'm one person, and, and I train those docents. I'm, I participate in training them with all my fellow curators to get them ready to be able to tell the stories that we would tell if we were able to be down on the floor. Um, so it's really important that they get the right training, that they know the history, that they can interpret those things and kind of really highlight the things that we can't necessarily do on the printed labels that are on the walls. So they're super important. I would imagine we probably have, you know, a few hundred docents. Um, they're a really important part of what we do. And we try to pay attention to what they tell us because they're the ones that are interacting with our visitors. They're the ones that are telling us if some things are working and some things aren't, what the questions are. You asked what questions people ask. One of the questions I know the docents have told me people ask all the time is what kind of science happens on the International Space Station. It's not something that we really talk about in the exhibitions that we have. Um, clearly there's a, you know, kind of a, a lack of uh, knowledge about that subject. It's not really, you know, clear to them from NASA's perspective what exactly is happening up there. Um, and so that's something that we know then we need to address when we redo an exhibition. Uh, so it really helps us to get their perspective and their feedback on things. They don't like it when we change things. If we have to take something off display, they, they, you know, they have a routine about how they give a tour. And having been a docent at Mount Vernon when I was getting, when I was kind of going through my graduate school work, I know that feeling very well. If something moves, if something you like to talk about disappears for whatever reason it might be, it can really throw off your plan. It can throw off the routine you get yourself into. So it can be a little challenging sometimes. There's a little bit of tension there sometimes. But for the most part, they are incredibly important to what we do. And uh, we rely on them. Uh, quite a bit just for that kind of information. It was, I'm actually one of the, uh, uh, I'm the head of the docent program here at our museum, and uh, I can tell you that, yeah, absolutely, that the, they're some of the most dedicated volunteers you'll ever have. I mean, we have volunteers that come in throughout the whole year, you know, for Air Venture, for the big air show and everything, but these folks are here with us every day, year-round, and, and they're passionate. I mean, and they have a passion for, for educating, for for showing, you know, school groups around and getting young kids interested in stuff. So I, I like what you what you said there about, you know, you, we have to listen to them because they're the ones that have the point contact with our visitors. You know, they they, they know what these, you know, what the comments are from these people. Absolutely. And I am thrilled that, you know, we have them as a resource. And many of them, especially in our area, are former employees of some of the agencies that we talk about. They are sometimes the, the route into those ideas and those things, especially for things like the um, 
national security programs. I mean, Washington, D.C. has lots of former federal employees, lots of current ones, but also lots of former ones. And they make a huge make up a huge component of um, the people that we um, we have doing that kind of work for us. And so it's invaluable. And I think we're protect particularly lucky in this area to have them that kind of community to tap into not only for their knowledge, but also to help us tell those stories in ways that sometimes we can't even tell. It, it is quite surprising. I mean, when you go on a, a tour with, with a docent at, uh, at the Air and Space Museum, uh, how many subject matter es- experts just happen to be walking around with you? Uh, I can remember years ago um, walking near the uh, the Viking lander uh, exhibit, and the fellow that was do- uh, was doing the talk about it was the assistant to the principal investigator for Project Viking, and he <laughs> just went off onto these anecdotes about all different parts of the of the machine, and yeah. you know nowhere on earth could you get that kind of a a, a discussion going. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always it's always fascinating. Even if you've been there before, just taking a tour with somebody else who knows, a, you know, uh, who knows about the individual exhibits is always a, a thrill. Yeah, I and went it's to something the museum that, and oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, I was going to say that it's one of the things that even as curators, that's helpful. I mean, I have a PhD in American history. Some of my colleagues, most of my colleagues, have PhDs in either American history or British history or German history or some kind of history. Um, and getting a chance to listen to them talk about their objects just helps me find not only better ways to talk about my objects, but to also tell those stories when they're not around. And so I love to be able to attend talks by my colleagues or uh, walk along on tours, if it be a docent tour or something else. I've, I've uh, organized my own kind of personal tours um, with docents. So personal groups I'm a part of, I've had them come into the museum. I've given them over to the docents and I'll, I'll stand and listen to the docents just for the fact of they may have something that, I haven't, you know, known before. I've learned a lot about aircraft that way, which has been really helpful. So um, I've often said even our, even curators sometimes need remedial uh, training in certain things. I would love to have a aircraft 101 class just for curators because it would really help me. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I was on a visit to Udvar-Hazy, and um, I mean, a couple of buddies were by the Blackbird, and we're sort of like, yeah, you know, man, could you imagine flying this thing? And the, a docent starts talking to us who was an SR-71 pilot. And we're just yep. like, like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, That's he was the like, kind yeah, of thing was... you run into around here. Those people yeah. all, all <laughs> around. Awesome. You never know when they're going to come up to you or you might hear from them and, and learn something. So it's a great environment to be part of. Well, I was I was fortunate enough when uh, before b- before the Chantilly site was uh, was completed, uh, I worked just across Route 28 in Virginia from uh, Dulles Airport, and I saw the SR-71 make its speed run. It just oh, finished. Goodness. It went out oh. to Salisbury, Maryland, and then we were listening to it on the. I was I was working for an aircraft company, so they had all the you know aircraft radios and stuff, and we were listening to the conversation as it was coming into land. And going back, you know, this was years ago, and going back now and seeing that very ship hanging there, you know, right, right parked in the middle of, of the hangar, it's so, it, it, you know, I feel like I can show my kids and my grandkids that and say, I was there, this is what, you know, and I'm sure you get a lot of people sharing stuff. I know that, that happens uh, if you've been to the uh, the Air Force Museum out in Ohio, there's so many uh, Air Force veterans that come by and tell their stories of what's going on with the you know the ship that you're standing in front of, and it's just it's a nice personal connection with 
uh, you know, what would otherwise just be a famous machine. Yeah, and that's something that we've gone through plenty in our own work and the things that I continue to do here. Um, we want to, you know, make connections between the things people see and their own personal stories because it strengthens their interest, I think, and it, it encourages additional exploration. And that's what we know we can provide is that these objects provide a kind of starting point sometimes for people to be inspired, young people in particular to be inspired to go off and do different things, study different things, um, become involved then in different things. And so if there's a person that they might identify with, no matter what background they have, if we can help find a person that they'll identify with, maybe they'll find some inspiration in that and, and get to work. And we do that a lot through our programming. We do lots of in-person talks, you know, kind of audience type, you know, uh, scenarios where a speaker will go up on stage and talk about things to a middle school classroom. And we've been running those kinds of programs for the last decade or more. And it's really, you know, we bring astronauts in or we bring engineers or scientists and people that, you know, they can learn about, you know, in a better way, just that sort of human connection, not just a printed quote on a page, but really that personal human connection gives them opportunities that we really couldn't do with artifacts even. And so we're trying to find the, you know, the sort of happy medium between all of these things, how many artifacts, how much print, how much, because everybody learns in a different way. And so it's being in a museum is a really challenging environment because you're not an amusement park. You're not a book. You're not, you know, there's a, you're not a school. There's all these things that you kind of have to be all at the same time in order to appeal to people. And it's a struggle in these days, certainly to find the right balance between all of those and not miss out on your real mission, which is to preserve artifacts uh, forever, if that's <laughs> the best word to use here. It's, you know, it's a challenge, but it is a challenge that most of us here, I think, really take to and we really thrive on it. I know I do and in, in sort of the way I approach my exhibit work and my work with uh, artifacts and doing even just talks like this or interviews is really to, you know, hopefully somebody, if it's not my story, it's a story that I can tell that somebody will find some inspiration from. I know this is like asking who's your favorite kid and things. You have millions of artifacts throughout the museum. But when you're when you're walking through the museum and you're seeing somebody walking by something that you're personally uh, attached to, that you have a you have a, a special kinship with, mm -hmm. what 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 are some of the artifacts that you want to turn people around and say, no, look at this. You've got to see this. Look at this. Is, uh, do you have? Um, there's one, there's a couple of things. Most of them, my, my primary research interest is, is photography. So astronaut cameras tend to be one of my main go-to points. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. I know not everybody finds it super interesting, but I grew up um, going to, having grown up in Southern Michigan, I went as a kid to Cedar Point and that was the play, only place I knew of that had an IMAX theater. And so in the 1980s uh, is when NASA and IMAX began working together to film the movies that are now just incredibly meaningful and special in part because I now work at the place that helped create them. And so there was a partnership between Lockheed, the museum and NASA to create those films. And having grown up watching them and gone, going to see them, you know, every summer and these just sort of massive, you know, seven story high uh, films, it really felt like you were in it. It felt like you were a part of it and not just watching it on a screen. And I think 
that then made the acquisition of those IMAX cameras in 2012 something that is incredibly memorable and meaningful for me. I, I, I know not everybody is like super interested in an IMAX camera. It looks like a movie camera. It's kind of a little different shape to it, but I have an appreciation for it that it goes well beyond just this sort of artifact. It's, it's a beautiful artifact. It has some really interesting qualities to it that if somebody's willing to listen, I'm happy to point them out. And it's one of those, you know, I have a certain, just a certain connection to it that makes it meaningful for me. And hopefully, you know, somebody else might pick up on that too and find it interesting and learn about it. So uh, that's one of my favorites that's on display in our Moving Beyond Earth exhibit. One that's not my artifact, but I always find fascinating. And I tell this story a lot is that I only learned about it. Um, I learned about it probably a few years into my being here when we were getting ready to open the Udvarhazi Center. And there is a very small pink spacecraft shaped icon and it has four wires sticking out at either side and it is a mercury capsule icon and it's the one that if you grew up in that era and watched and saw images of mission control it is the icon that was physically moved across a map to represent where the spacecraft was on earth you know sort of what it was over at that point in a mission and the fact that we have this tiny little i mean it's not more than the size of your hand Um, But we have this tiny little plastic thing. It's got little light bulbs embedded in it. Um, I just, I find that to be such a unique um, cultural, you know, icon. It's, it's got this, it's just got this very visual character to it that kind of, you know, brings up that, those mission control images of the 1960s and, you know, white, uh, you know, guys in white shirts and skinny little black ties and things like that. I think it's just very evocative of that time. And, and it's, it's just kind of a cool little thing. It's kind of hidden away in a case out at Udvarhazi. And I don't know, it's just got the, it's just kind of a funny, cute little thing. So oh, those are two tough. of my favorites, but those are the ones that I, like I said, I always talk about the same two because um, they're great. But I, my, my third favorite, if I got a third would be Gene Cernan's Gemini nine, um, uh, spacesuit because it was uh, something I actually got to interact with him personally about back in 2015. I gave him a tour of an exhibition where we had it on display and I got to hear the stories about the uh, EVA that he did directly from him. And so it has a really, pers- again, a personal meaning to me. Um, even though I'm not the spacesuit curator, I just I find the object just completely fascinating. We got to put it on display and we worked really hard to make it possible to display it, they're very, those spacesuits are very fragile. And so the fact that we got to do it was pretty great. Wow. Yeah, I mean, just looking inside that helmet and thinking about it getting all steamed up and yep. trying to grab onto the side of the ship and there was no toeholds or footholds. Yeah, just... and how much he sweated. I mean, he talked about that when we spoke, and he was really wanting to examine, like, every bit of it. We had it in a case that was up against a wall, and I just, in my head, I can see him kind of looking around and looking at the back of the suit, and it was just like you could see all those memories kind of coming up and that, that experience really kind of, uh, kind of, you know, fresh in his mind. It was really cool. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm, I'm monopolizing the conversation. Let me let. That's all right, Jim. I'm used to it now. You know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm just your uh, Ed McMahon to the to your Johnny Carson. So <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to commercial though. That's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, Jennifer, I've got I've, I've got a million questions, and we really, if if, if it's possible, if we could have you back again, I would, oh, I would I appreciate that to. very much. Awesome. Well, uh, let's talk just a little bit about the movie here. It's uh, 
uh, one of the things about that 1970, we were talking before we were on air here about how how great that room is with the uh, amazing wallpaper. Yeah. Um, I, I really hope he liked uh, football. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really, um, we don't, you don't see wallpaper on walls quite so much anymore, but um, it, it seems very much of its time. I, I always, I'm always fascinated by historical films and set decoration and how much work they go through to make these look authentic. And so something like the wallpaper to me is fascinating because, or the, even the dresser that's behind Lovell's head, just thinking about, is that the really, you know, is that really what it would look like? Are those really the things that he would have had in his room? The pajamas he's wearing, the lengths to which they go to to, to really make these sets real is, I find, just fascinating. Well, I can I can vouch for the uh, that Ravel model that uh, that uh, Jim Lovell is uh, moving around. I had that very model in 1970, and uh, <laughs> it was really hard to put together, and uh, the paint the uh, the paint was uh, actually you, you, if a, a, a true kid modeler at the time would be looking at pictures and saying that's not the right paint that's in the that's in the Ravel. <laughs> the Ravel kid would say no, paint it all white. It's like no, it's silver. I've seen the pictures. Right. But uh, it was uh, quite a quite a point of contention uh, with a lot of kids. One of the one of the bigger problems with the Ravel kits was they were designed around say sixty four, sixty five. Right. So that was when. Uh, when the lunar module still was painted white and all the artist conceptions. And uh, I remember as kids, uh, other, other model builders would get really upset because he was like, where can I get some gold foil to put around? Right, <laughs> right. My, my and I, we, we've run into that problem too. You mentioned artist conceptions. We have a Norman Rockwell painting that shows a sort of early, probably 1964, next 65 conception of the first steps. And it is a, uh, it's a white, almost entirely white lunar module with his own sort of preconceived notions about the lunar surface uh, and then also the spacesuits that the astronauts be wearing. You know, it's not too, too far off, but you can definitely see the differences between if you were to look at, say, an image from the moon, a photograph of astronauts on the moon, there's definitely a difference. And so it's kind of, it, yeah, I've always found it interesting, the the kind of it's like a time capsule you know just looking at all of these little things yeah that's that's what the moon looked like before we knew what it looked like right i I do love if if it's the picture that i'm thinking of it has that beautiful blast crater just underneath the uh, the descent engine and it's like wow if it it only do that it would have been nice right um and uh it's uh he has the astronaut has his foot stepped out like he's the keep on trucking guy so it's just but, but uh, yeah, an interesting, interesting time. You, you do have one of the things that, as you were saying uh, on our previous episode, that uh, you have people that are interested in artwork. I, I was always impressed by how much artwork is part of the uh, Air and Space Museum, most notably the uh, uh, the Robert McCall mural yeah. um, on the south side. That uh, it, Yep, it's, in the south entryway. It's a it's a beautiful thing, and I always worry that if somehow if if you're going to move the building or change the building, how how it will be possible to move or preserve that? Cause yeah, it's... we all worry about that. <laughs> I don't yeah. know that there's an answer to that yet, but yeah, the art collection is surprisingly a, a surprisingly large portion of what we do, and that's in part because when in the 19 I want to say the late 1970s, NASA was going through I don't want to say a purge. That's a little bit of a strong term, but they were turning over 
quite a few of their objects to us. The art collection is one thing that they they handed over to the museum. And so around the time the museum was opening, we received uh, almost the entirety of the NASA art collection. And part of that were the commissioned works that they did during the 1960s. The NASA did have an artist program that it ran throughout uh, most of the 1960s. And so you get these really sometimes relatively famous artists being brought in to paint different scenes, um, really to do, uh, do things of their choosing. And so we have an incredible selection of artwork from uh, Rockwell is probably the best known of the names, but Robert McCall, some we have some of his, and he of course came in and painted uh, onto the wall of the museum, that mural that is uh, there at the entryway. So it's an incredible collection that I've gotten to tap into a few times for different projects I've worked on, either as sort of in a virtual sense of showing an image of a piece of art or actually having the artwork pulled out and put on display so it's a it's a great resource there's a lot we've actually had a fair number of uh, research fellows come in and take a look at the art collection and use it for their own uh, historical research we've had people do you know involve it in their PhD dissertations and things like that so it's a great resource um, that you know people have, have gotten more interested in and I think are going to be continued we're going to we're going to continue to find ways to bring that art to the public because it's it's a really um, interesting component of what we do uh, that you may not they may not think about normally. I, I really appreciate your uh, increase in the virtual world and, and be able to being able to present uh, artifacts that you have there that people normally don't get a view of. Um, I, most particularly, I'm thinking of the interior of Lem Two. And uh, and also recently the interior of uh, Columbia, so that yeah. we can actually you can sit in the couches and look right. at the dials. I lost like a whole afternoon to that. <laughs> totally fell down a rabbit hole looking in the interior of the spacecraft. It's so there's so much to explore in there. I find it um, equally intriguing, just sort of um, from sort of my own perspective as a historian to be able to really see the space. I mean, I you know one of the things that people always ask us is you know what does it look like on the inside we've worked really hard over the last time i've worked here since the summer i'm actually in the next couple of weeks coming up on the 16 years here and in that time i've seen us advance so much in the way we present those spaces to people because we know they want to see them. I think the best has always been, Jim, you brought it up, is the interior of the lunar module. We don't do it anymore, but one of the things that was always my favorite when I came to the museum when I was younger is being able to walk over to the lunar module. And we had a very simple camera installed on the inside that you could turn and move with yes. a remote that or a little joystick that was down on one of the artifact labels and then there was a little embedded TV screen and so you could zoom in and out and look inside the lunar module and if you're really really good about it you could point it out the window and sort of look down the hallway of the museum or even <laughs> point it on yourself and so it was just kind of a really simple way of doing it now we're doing it much more virtually we're doing lots of um, at least we used to do a lot of QTVR now we're doing things like the Columbia 3D model where we're working on these really intense projects. And part of that is about, is about is a preservation issue. We don't want to have to go in to look at something anymore. We want to make sure that we're not damaging artifacts any more 
then we really have to because every time we enter a vehicle every time we open a hatch every time we open a cockpit there's the potential that we could damage something and that's just human error not anything that's intentional or planned or anything like that and and, and yes we take all the precautions we can but there's always that possibility. So um, we've done similar projects with, um, we're working now on digitizing the space shuttle discovery. So the photography has been completed and now over time we will compile all of that. It's a really complicated object to work with much more so than Columbia because of the color and the surfaces being very different. So we're gradually working through those things. We've also digitized the right flyer that way. That was the first of the digitization projects that went through that. So there's a really nice online tour where you can learn about the right flyer and all the different points, um, sort of like what you can do with command modules. So it's a really important part of what we do. It's, um, it's something that Smithsonian has spent some time thinking about how to approach because we want people all around the world to see our objects and be able to interact with them because we know everybody can't get to the museum. Um, we might get eight or nine million people a year, but that's a tiny fraction of the people in the world. So how can we take that virtually to a wider audience is a big part of what we're trying to do now. Yeah, and they're all not going to be able to climb through the X1, but what you can do now uh, virtually. I've, I, I always wondered what the inside had looked like, <laughs> and now being able to just stick your head in and seeing all the places that Chuck had signed it. And yeah, oh, yeah, just... every time he visited, <laughs> yeah, which is definitely yeah. not something we would probably do uh, all that much anymore, um, but it's definitely a traditional thing that was done, and, and he was he's a, definitely a special character in our story. I always love the uh, the Corsair. The F4U Corsair is signed by Pappy Boynton, and uh, I always thought that was pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, in fact, um, you know, we always have we have stories of lots of different people coming into the museum to visit and and get a chance to see things, and we've given you know everybody from time to time gives a special tour to somebody uh, who you know, would prefer not to be seen perhaps um, by visitors or be amongst a big crowd. Um, but uh, some of the some more, more interesting ones that I can mention are the people who are really legitimately interested in aviation. And Chuck was one of those. Certainly he had a strong passion for aviation. He'd been a pilot for so long. The other person that we used to get visits from was um, Jimmy Buffett because he's a pilot. <laughs> so you see a lot of pilots who want to come in. And, and I should mention that as a, you know, sort of I talked about our artifacts as a resource. The other massive resource we have is an archive. And so people can come in and do research on different aircraft types because we have an incredible set of aircraft manuals on hand and so people can come in and do research on their specific aircraft or the type of aircraft they own and I know he has been in the past interested in learning more about what he owns and so he's come and, and done some work in our uh, libraries and archives so um, you know it's 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 an unusual thing to walk into a staff cafeteria and see Jimmy Buffett sitting at a table, but um, you know it's it is kind of the environment we live in where people, you know, it's not just you know an average wow. person on the street that's interested in this subject. Anybody can be interested in it, and we're happy to provide uh, the same res access to resources to anybody um, that oh. would be interested. Are there any? Are there any um, artifacts that you have right now that you wish were out on the floor, but there, I mean, I'm sure there, are, there must be some that you wish were out on the floor, but right now you just don't have a, a place for them that you really wish you could just like get out of the closet and say, yeah. 
Oh, for sure. I mean, there are, uh, we literally, I mean, if you break it down by, you know, percentages, about 80% of what we have in our collection is not on display. And I don't want that to sound like we have, uh, you know, it's not as though if you had 100 airplanes, 80 of them are not on display. Many of those objects are very, very small. Uh, smaller than, you know, you know, it does range from an aircraft all the way down to something the size of a thumbnail. So it can go all different directions. Uh, volume is not represented is not represented in that figure of 80%. So um, we have about 65,000 artifacts in the collection. Um, so that gives you a sense of um, having about 20% of them on display. Only about 11%, 12%, it depends on where we are in our process, but um, those that about half of the number that are on display are on display in our own buildings. The other half of those are on display in other locations. And so the loans, like I talked about last time, the Saturn Fives, you know, all of those are loaned out to other institutions and we count those in, the, our, in the, sort of our figures as far as what items are on display. So. Um, yeah, I mean, with that many objects not on display, you could you could pick just about anything. Um, I am curator for our chronograph collection, the astronaut chronographs. I will mention that in particular because you can see one yes, in this yes, minute. So. Um, you can see Jim Lovell wearing, and I've been trying to pause it at a point where I can really determine what he's got on his wrist. But I'm pretty sure that's an Omega Speedmaster, and uh, we have his uh a few of his uh in our collection and i would love to have more of those on display in part because i think it is just like this movie having um very human elements to it a chronograph whether it be worn during training or around the house or on a mission or on a spacewalk is a very identifiable piece of equipment and i think the more space flight is identifiable to people the easier it is to understand as a as a sort of non-astronaut uh, so i love being able to tell the story of chronographs and and that's something i wish we did more you could answer this question which astronaut had the biggest watch <laughs> <laughs> they all did oh, okay. <laughs> good answer yeah uh, yeah we there's yeah i mean it's again it's a relatable story and the way i always tell it is if you wear a watch you have a reason for wearing a watch and you there is something implicitly important about time if you wear a watch you know it's con you're, you're literally connected to time in some way through a watch and so you know it's it's crucial to the lives of an astronaut they have to have clocks they have to have some kind of timekeeping device for all the different activities they have to do. When your life is scheduled down to five-minute increments, you have to have a watch on. Um, and so it makes it a really integral part of just the day-to-day -day operations of astronauts and, and sort of what they do. And, you know, they all wear different watches now. They can wear what they want, really. But um, the Omega chronographs in particular are just a really fascinating part of the story. And there's just a huge appetite for them in terms of a community of people who are interested in them. Um, they're fascinating. I get. I spend more time getting uh, responding to inquiries from the public about chronographs than I do about the other 2,300 objects in my collection. So, wow. well, it's it, it, it's amazing this this hobby this you know the this subject that there are so many aspects that <laughs> that that cross that that cross paths. I mean, between people that collect watches and and space and yeah. 
Just, lots of it, lots of people in the space collector community, which is another community of people. I, you know, I talk about resources a lot. I love to draw on the community of collectors that I've been in touch with um, through various websites and whatnot. They are a huge help to me doing my work. It, you know, if somebody else has done the work, has had the time to go to an archive or go, go to a place or look at a thing or study it or they've collected it, I, I am happy to tap into that. I don't feel like I have any, like, absolute ownership over a particular topic. There's, you know, too many people on this earth to think that that's the way that it is. So if somebody else has done the research and is willing to share it with me, I'm happy to take it on. And so I've always tried to make myself available to people and answer questions when they have them, if there's something that I can provide. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, it's more of a conversation to me than it is. A, it's, it's a, it's a dialogue. It is not a monologue. I am not here just to sort of tell you my opinion. Um, it, you know, it I, must, want, I want to hear from others. It must be a great, it, it's a great job that you have to, to hear so many, because every, every artifact has a story attached to it. So you get to hear wonderful stories every day. I would think. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just collected something from a World War II veteran. He was a machinist on, I don't know, I can't remember what ship he was on in the Pacific, but he just told some fascinating stories and, and he eventually ended up working on Viticon tubes that were used inside the cameras that were used during the Apollo program, actually Mercury and Apollo. It was one of those random, I don't know how I got the connection, you know, how they found me kind of a thing, but just to sit down with that guy, he's 92 years old and hear his story. You know, he was a machinist. I grew up the daughter of a machinist. You know, there were certain things that he could talk about that I understood just based on my own history. Yeah, it's just really unexpected to have those kinds of connections with people and, and learn about the guy who, you know, learn directly from the guy who created the first IMAX camera, the inventor of IMAX, really. So wow. um, it's it's pretty cool. And I know Chris has had that opportunity a lot with the astronauts that have visited EAA is just getting that personal connection with them. It really enhances your own understanding in a, in a way that an object or a book can't do. I remember before, uh, before I had that chance, I remember coming here thinking, wouldn't it be neat if someday I got to meet one of the Apollo astronauts? I didn't really even, <laughs> I didn't even care like which one. I just, I was oh, like, yeah. man, that program was, same with Gemini Mercury, like that stuff was all so cool. Yeah. You know, I'd love to eventually just get to sit down and talk with one. And I, yeah. I had no idea uh, what carnival ride I was going to go <laughs> on here. So Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, what's funny is that, uh, you know, thinking back on it now, my, I started here in the summer of 2002, this was still fresh in my memory. This movie was still quite fresh in my memory at the time. And that meant that starting here, my real like hope, if I were to ever have that chance, kind of like you were thinking, if I ever have that chance to meet one of these guys, um, my whole hope was to meet Jim Lovell because I just found him to be, he's, you know, the fact that he's kind of a Midwestern guy, you know, from that, from Chicago and that area to me, was very familiar. He, he seemed like the kind of guy I would understand or the person I could relate to the best based on his demeanor. If it's represented well in the movie, then maybe that's what he's really like in person. And of course, I met him and it's exactly how he is and I was just I like the granted I look um really exhausted when I when I met him after a long night of working at the museum I I, I that picture of me with him is really important and then when I got to sit down with Fred Hayes in 2005 I think it was 2004 or 5 
uh, he was exactly the kind of guy I expected um, from everything I'd ever seen. And he was, he, I, I have, I've said many times, many of them are, are the kind of people you would want to be your grandpa. If you, if I had the best grandpa on the whole planet, but man, if I could have had another one, it would have been one of those two guys. Cause they were just so incredibly cool and just generous with their time and willing to listen so patiently. You know, that's one of the things I, I can't believe they've done for as long as they have is listen so patiently to all the questions that people think it's the first time that they've asked, been asked that question. <laughs> and in reality, they've been asked the same question for almost 50 years or more. So um, their generosity is just amazing to me. I remember I geeked out. Uh, we were, I had them on a golf cart. I was driving somewhere and Jim turned around and called Fred Fredo. And I was like, he actually calls him Fredo. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and that, and I think that's what it boils down to is the, you know, we follow the technology and we follow all the, you know, this, this sense of history of the, the space race, but it really, it, it's mostly about understanding the humanity, the human condition. And these are the human beings that let us relate to the, the you know, the literally out of this world nature of yeah. going to the moon that these, yeah. you know, these simple human beings, these nice, nice guys yeah. got us there, you know, got us there and back. And I think that's what's actually really apparent in this particular section of the movie, too, is in this one moment, you've got a father and a son talking about something that is clearly very personable and very difficult for both of them, partly because the young boy doesn't understand it. He, he knows it was scary. He knows that the Apollo 1 fire killed three astronauts. He, 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 he's scared by that. But, you know, on the other side of that conversation is someone who is personally attached to each of those three people who had a very close personal working relationship with those three people and and I think Tom Hanks plays it very well here which is that you can almost feel like see him feel the hurt that that still caused even a few just you know a few years down the road and I'm sure probably for many of them it's still really painful to have to think about it, you can see that affect him and I I think it's that it's these moments in movies like this that give us that insight that is really valuable to seeing that, yeah, it is really, the technology is awesome. It's cool. We have all these cool artifacts. We have these things that can tell stories, but it's really the way in which these two connect on a personal level about the people, I think that is most meaningful and, and really a big takeaway of the movie generally is just how you see the people interact with each other um, in really difficult circumstances. And I think, you know, that's obviously that's the, and you know, sort of more towards the tail end of the story is even though they have their frustrating moments on their mission, the three guys come out really working together to solve a problem. And that's sort of the NASA story generally at this time is, you know, working together to solve problems. I always said you can really feel it. Uh, Tom Hanks uh, really does an amazing job with just that one phrase where he says, well, let me, you know, let me tell you something about that fire. Just that phrase like he had it's almost like he didn't even have to say anything else the scene could have ended after that i mean uh he just like you said you he he paints a picture if you will of, of hurt feeling you know hurt and yeah and uh, and loss and frustration with what happened yeah he's not trying to scare his kid he's really trying to put like i said i think last time i was on or a, a, earlier today is just trying to boil it down into really 
uh, comfortable terms to discuss with a four or five year old boy and having to do that myself sometimes. And we have lots of scary things that happen in the world all the time. And I have an eight year old son too. And, and he does ask questions about things that happen in the world and he's trying to understand them. And so you can see, you can learn some lessons certainly from other difficult circumstances that have happened. And I think this is a, such a personal one for them. Uh, as a parent, it's really, you know, it's, it, it really warms your heart when you see a, another parent kind of tackle it in a way maybe you didn't think about but is really effective and, and really you can see the bond between them and just how it, the son understands. Maybe he's still scared, but he, he gets it and he knows that it, it's not like anybody did it intentionally. It's, it's this is kind of, the way he describes it, it's, it's this kind of part of what happens is that mistakes get made and unfortunately bad things happen sometimes. And I think you know the uh, the job that uh, Jim Lovell has in this minute is pretty much your your career at uh, at the Air and Space Museum. You basically <laughs> have to explain to, you you have tired tired tourists and yep. and kids on buses yep. all spilling out, you know, and they're they're tired and they 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 they're faced with a million things, and you have to get down to the point of every artifact here, saying, well, why is this here, and why is it important to me, and how do I relate to something that you know is is now flying past Jupiter and what yeah. what does it mean to me and you you have to be Tom Hanks in, in yeah this role kind of and, and that's not such a bad thing I'm a big fan of his so I don't mind stepping yeah. into his shoes every <laughs> once in a while and but I think yeah I think the the sort of Jim Lovell Tom Hanks perspective here and I know they spent a lot of time together leading up to this movie um, and I've I've talked to Jeffrey Kluger who wrote the co-wrote the book I totally understand the strategy he's using I, I from multiple perspectives as a parent as a professional that there's for different audiences and whether it be a five-year-old kid or a 50-year-old adult whatever it is you have to find a way to to take what you know and train I always say call it translating it's not really the best term for it but it's really kind of translating that information you have into something that is digestible and understandable to somebody who may not look at it the same way. And it's just a way to generally, I think I generally try to approach conversations, but um, to really make something, if it's, if I want somebody to be interested in it, to make it interesting. And if I want somebody to understand it, to make it understandable and just, I have to see it from their point of view. And if I can't, if I can't work to do that, then there's no way I can do an exhibit or write a book or an article that's going to be interesting to anybody. I mean, I, w I want to be interested in it. But if my enthusiasm doesn't come across, I think that's the number one thing I've learned in my job is I really love my job. And that's one of the best parts of having the job and being able to talk about the job because I think the enthusiasm comes across and all the rest of it will come along with it. It's, it's, it's fun to do and to talk about, but... Um, it's just sort of my my way of kind of also helping people understand eventually the facts and figures and all the other little bits. And I give tours and people are like, wow, you know so many dates right off the top of your head. I'm like, but that's not where I start. I don't start from the facts and figures. I start from what is it, you know, I kind of move into it in a different way. I approach it from a different perspective, which I think is useful in the setting that we're in. I had a, a docent, this was back in the 80s, uh, tell me when we were in the, uh, the Skylab, that, that room where, the, where Skylab is, and on one side of the room is the pit with uh, the early earlier rockets, including the V-2, Yep. and they walked from the V-2 over to uh, the Apollo Soyuz that was at the Paris Air Show, yeah. and uh, the, the, the docent started off by talking about you know the vengeance weapon of, of a V-2, and that it was built by Von Braun and his, and his group. 
and the the goal of the V2 was to kill many people and mm. it was it was it was during one of the worst you know the, the a world war yeah. and in the time from 1945 30 years later in 1975 we were building uh, a bridge to connect two of the uh, two of the biggest foes on earth that hadn't had a battle mm. yet uh to yeah. connect in space and just and and that's only about 50 feet between the two <laughs> The two things, and you have to tell the whole story of manned spaceflight yeah. in between. Yeah, it's it's something that we are spending more time thinking about too. Is that we know that our stories, there are points along the narrative of aviation and spaceflight that echo things of the past. And so, where are those moments of the 1980s or the 1990s or whenever that connect backwards or you know forwards to other things that are happening what are the themes it's not so much about the actual timeline but about this the themes within that timeline that are it's a different way of approaching the subject matter that we find to be really interesting and cha and, and something to really challenge our visitors to think about all of this in a different way and so if you want to think about one of the themes that we use now or one of the sort of phrases we use is that aviation and spaceflight have transformed the world well they really have and sort of what are the ways in which that has happened there are sort of social and cultural changes that have happened there are people who've been involved in those changes there are sort of business and politics behind all of it and so with the subjects that fall underneath that that feed into that story of uh, transforming the world through these things that's really, you know, kind of um, a different way of approaching it. It may not be comfortable to everybody. Many historians really like to have a chronological story. It is the way that time passes, and it's challenging to take yourself a couple steps back from that and say, okay, here's my timeline, and here's where all of these things happen that are all tied in by a different... Um, a different meaning there's a different subject line there and so there are some interesting points at which we're finding those kind of stories to be possible where we can tell a story of say flight through a piece of material from the right flyer that went to the moon on apollo 11 we have a plaque that has that on it and it is wow. right across from the right flyer so it has this there is you know sort of these these two similar things, they have a connection to each other, but they're separated by 60-some years. How can we tell stories like that? So, you know, some of the early female pilots, how can we tell their story and the story of, say, the first woman to fly for the Thunderbirds or something like that? You know, we're looking for those interesting opportunities to tell stories in different ways. And I think that's part of what will be interesting about how we transform the museum overall and when people come in the next decade they'll really be able to see i think a substantial change to the way we present these objects um, for a modern audience because the museum was designed in the mid-1970s and um, most of our visitors now are of a totally different generation and so we need to appeal to a bit different of an audience um, in a different way but i think it'll be fresh and interesting and fun and and hopefully everybody will learn something i think that's generally why we're here well, you're doing a darn good job of it. I gotta say, I've, I've enjoyed it. every time I go there. Good. It's just it's always something new, and it's it's very fun, and it's it's always fun watching the people experiencing your museum. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, we get all we get all types in the museum. I have had some really funny experiences. I once saw a guy walk around in a Jedi robe. I thought that was the craziest <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. Um, but you see, you know, people who just look like and, and, and if you were in the museum today, you'd see lots of really tired and hot and sweaty people walking around because it's, you know, something like a, a heat index of 107 here today. So the space um, ice cream is flowing then. Yeah, exactly. It's no longer a piece of foam block in a container in a bag. It's 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 all, you know, a one big pile of mush. Sometimes we know we serve as a respite for people when, you know, especially over 4th of July, we get our usually our biggest numbers on the 4th of July or the day after Thanksgiving and and that's coming our way. Sometimes it's just for bathroom break, sometimes it's for more and hopefully we can turn those breaks of from the fireworks into more meaningful experience for people and it's part of what we're going to do is make it try and engage every person that comes through the door you know my husband always and he's going to hate me for telling this story but when he came here in eighth grade he came with his class they got in the door and he and his friends immediately tried to find a way out so they escaped from their teachers and they got on the metro and they went to the mall Wow. You know, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> we want kids to come in the door and instantly feel welcomed and understood. And we want to appeal to them, not in maybe flashy ways, but in meaningful ways that they will remember. And I think that's, you know, for those of us who love it, because I think the three of us are definitely people who love it. Those are the kinds of things that we experienced. And so how can we carry that feeling in a different way to people who wouldn't normally feel so attracted to the subject matter. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on our show again. And we definitely, if we, if it's at all possible to have you on later on in this show, we can talk more direct Apollo stuff too, especially, sure. uh, especially with um, uh, lithium hydroxide containers and things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I can, I, I can yeah, I, I, it's easy to envision in my mind. I run across it in our uh, artifact database from time to time and always brings a smile to my face knowing that, you know, it's coming up in this movie and, you know, I have to say, uh, Apollo 13 is probably one of the only two or three movies that if I find it on on the TV dial, if I am happen to be clicking through and it's on, I absolutely have to watch it. Yep. Um, I was in Pittsburgh about three weeks ago. I was flipping through the channels at about 9 o'clock at night, and it was on, and I could not stop myself from watching it. So <laughs> <laughs> It was just like, of course I'm going to watch it. It's sort of like Star Wars or Indiana Jones or something like that. You know, my other passions, it, this is easily in that same category as far as my it, – it's watchability. Yes, your your brain goes. Don't touch that dial. Yes, it's, true. <laughs> wow. Well, thank thank you again so much for for, for being with us here. Uh, please, if for folks who haven't heard uh, early our, our previous uh, episode with Jennifer, just dial back to uh, minute nine, and you can hear the first part of our interview. And of course, if uh, you're listening to this far in the future, we probably have future episodes. So check back with us on our big site, Apollo13Minute.com, where you can get all of our current episodes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute. Find us on uh, Facebook at the Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control. And, of course, iTunes and Google Play, where you can uh, download all of our episodes. Please join us tomorrow. We're going to be talking more about, about the Apollo 1 fire and maybe maybe more about the wallpaper. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it looks like we're going to have a loss of signal in 30 seconds, so we will catch you on the other side here on the Apollo 13 Minute.